immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, uh, welcome back to Turn On The Light. This is episode eight. Um, Had a little bit of a break last week from the usual two weekly scheduling. It was um, bank holiday in England, the 75th anniversary of VE Day, um, the ending of World War II. Um, So yeah, it was nice to just have a little bank holiday weekend break and sometimes it's necessary to just sort of rest and recuperate and, you know, relax and, and get your head back into the right space as I'm sure many people are feeling a little discombobulated in these strange times that we're experiencing. Um, but anyway, I'm back with a bang. My name is Louise. I am your host. Um, in case you didn't know that yet. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the good things that's come from having a bit of a break there, there's been three weeks between the previous episode of the podcast and this one is that there's so much good news that I have to, to tell you at the top of the episode here. Um, I've picked sort of a select few stories from things that you can get involved in, things from around the world, um, even though there's so much cool stuff going on with wildlife at the moment. So obviously there's lots more good news out there, um, but these are just the select ones that I wanted to tell you guys about. Um, so the first one here is that the World Land Trust, so they're a non-profit um, They have saved 642 acres of forests and wetlands in Colombia. So they started an appeal to raise funds so that the Fundación Biodiversa Colombia, FBC, could buy land in Barbacoas, which is in the middle Magdalena Valley. Um, And that was to extend a national park there, a national reserve there called the El Silencio National Reserve which is home to many, many threatened species, such as the lowland tapir, brown spider monkeys, um, it acts as fish nurseries, there's a lot of endangered species of tree there. Um, Yeah, this incredible area of land, they managed to raise enough funds so that that could be bought by um, an NGO actually in Colombia itself, um, which is incredible. Um, You know, this, this area of rainforest is comparable to the Amazon in terms of the endemism that it experiences, the number of species, the number of migratory birds that they get coming to and from. Um, So that area of forest and wetland is now safe, thanks to the work of the World Land Trust. Um, And that is pretty incredible. Yeah. The second really wonderful story that I wanted to to talk about here is the first wild stork chicks have hatched in the UK for over 600 years um which is amazing uh, they were extinct as breeding birds um since way way back in 1416 um some say possibly even the English Civil War but that's you know the the sort of official date that we've got um and over the years, 100 plus birds have been bred in captivity and released at three locations in West Sussex, so in the south of England there. Um, and four pairs of birds made nests. Um, and sort of earlier this month, there was really high hopes that they'll hatch and fledge this summer. Um, and they have hatched. Um, Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust is one of the partners in the scheme. Just to plug them a little bit more in there, as as we all know that I I love them very much. <laughs> Um, so storks are faithful to where they've raised, so they will return. So they will return to um, to nest. 
uh, in West Sussex there and we will hopefully see more little hatchlings and fledglings in the future. Um, so 60 days after they hatch they're big enough to fly then they fly south for three years when they'll return back to us to breed so it's this lovely sort of migratory cycle that we can keep our eyes on um, now that they're back and, and have hatched in the UK. Uh, the next interesting story that I came across um, was the sequencing of lion genomes. So I saw this in National Geographic um, and scientists have sequenced genomes of 20 individual lions, um, including some extinct cave lions. Um, so 14 of the 20 individuals actually died long, 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 long ago, um, including two cave lions from 30,000 years ago um, that were found preserved in the permafrost in Siberia and the Yukon. Um, and this is really interesting because looking into their genome will allow us to look into the future and how we can um, help the species of lions that are facing threats um, in this day and age. Um, so they looked at Barbary lions, Middle Eastern lions, Cape lions, and they were all studied. Um, and the studies basically reinforced the importance of having large protected areas of contiguous habitat um, for gene flow um, between individuals and protection from hunters. Um, so that's, that's just a really exciting little study that's, that's come to light recently. Um, another birdie bird story from the UK here. Um, so we've had the largest bird of prey in the UK return to England for the first time in 240 years. And that is the white-tailed eagle. So these guys were last seen off the Isle of Wight in 1780. And the final bird was shot in the Shetland Islands in 1918. So it's been a long, long time before since we've we've seen these guys. Um, and now we've got their 2.5 metre wingspan back in our skies. Um, so it was Forestry England and the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation. Um, thanks to collaborative efforts between those organisations, this species is making a comeback. So that's fabulous. Um, the next little thing that I wanted to touch on was a little project that's going on that um, Audrey Granger, who was a previous guest on the podcast, drew my attention to. Um, so this project is called The New Big Five, and it's an international in initiative to create a new big five of wildlife. So this big five is dedicated to wildlife photography, not hunting. Shooting with a camera, not with a gun. Um, and this project is supported by amazing people such as Jane Goodall. Um, you've got support from Chris Packham, Moby, um, you know, um, more than 100 of the world's leading wildlife photographers, filmmakers, conservationists and charity organisations are behind this project, which was created by British wildlife photographer and journalist Graham Green. So it's a celebration of wildlife and wildlife photography. Um, and you can get involved with this by voting for the five animals that they want to be included in the new big five of wildlife photography. Um, and you can find them on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, it's at new big five. Um, so, yeah, you can go and follow along with that um, and you can add your vote um, to the pool there. Um, and the final cool, cool piece of news that I wanted to share with you guys is very, very recent. Um, what day are we on today? Okay, so I think it was a couple, only two days ago this happened. Um, but incredibly, orcas have been seen swimming in Strangford Loch in Ireland, um, just near Belfast. Uh, they've never been seen there before. Um, 
and it's crazy like the amount of people who I've seen popping up on social media like who I know personally or who I know sort of through the conservation world um who are not connected to each other um but saying oh my god I swear I've just seen orcas I've just seen orcas in Stranford Glock and you know that message sort of being passed through social channels and then other people going to the window and looking out and seeing these guys um and there's some wonderful like drone footage um of these two orcas swimming and and diving and 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 breaching up in the lock there so that is some incredible stuff as well so if you have time to go and look at footage of them there then then please do because it's very heartwarming to see so that that sort of wraps up my my plethora of of good news bits and bobs there um good news stories that i just wanted to share and that maybe you haven't seen or maybe don't get as much coverage in the news as the big dreaded rona at the moment um yeah so i hope that one of those or all of those or some of that made you made you smile and and feel happy because it did me (laughs) um so now moving on to our species in the spotlight this week um and this time it is a very jazzy yellow and black little fellow. Um, it's a bit different. This is the first amphibian species that I have featured on the podcast. Um, and this little guy is an Australian native and he is called the Southern Corroboree Frog. So introducing the Southern Corroboree Frog. This jazzy little fellow is one of two species of small poisonous ground-dwelling frogs um, that live in the little area that they live. Um, there's the northern corroboree frog and then the southern corroboree frog, who we're focusing on today. Uh, Latin name Sudafrine corroboree. He's native to the southern tablelands of Australia and only found in the snowy mountain region of Kosciuszko National Park. I think I said that right. It's a Polish spelling. So, Kosciuszko National Park. Uh, 12,500 to 17,050... Sorry, let me repeat that. 1,250 to 1,750 metres above sea level. With a range of just 400 square kilometres. So, a very specific area um, of habitat um, and a tiny little range. Could you be more specific but these guys are very very distinctive they are about 2.5 centimeters long however so little little guys um but they're black with bright yellow stripes or yellow with black stripes but either way neon yellow very very bright now these poor little babies have been in continuous decline for the past 30 years extinction in the wild is not even estimated it's expected within the next sort of two to three years without human intervention. So they are teetering on the very, very edge. And no signs of breeding in the wild outside of captivity have been seen since 2013. Now, of course, I'm sure you can guess that means it is classed as critically endangered on the IUCN red list, with as few as 50 adults left in the wild. So why is this happening to these poor, cute little tiny guts? Well, some of you may heard of this big bag. Big bad. Chytrid fungus. Or chytridiomycosis. The disease that's associated with chytrid fungus. 
So the arrival of this disease in the 1980s has shown to have devastating effects on this species. So what is chytrid fungus? So it's a nasty fungus that has impacted frog populations worldwide, um, and it has a lot of bad press for good reason. And it's the primary cause of frog decline globally, absolute world over. Um, it's an aquatic, chytrids are aquatic fungi that cause chytridiomycosis disease in amphibians. Um, and it's spread through water or through direct contact with other frogs. The disease attacks the heart and the skin, destroying the skin to a point that's usually fatal for the poor little frog. But the fungus, however, does not cause immediate death, which allows it time to be able to spread so effectively between populations and between different species, between, you know, different habitats, between different niches. It just spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Now, in the southern corroboree frog, particular case it's not helped that they live in very close proximity to the common eastern froglet now this species is thought to sustain high levels of infection but doesn't develop the disease itself so it acts as a reservoir host for this fungus it sustains the disease in the ecosystem and allows transmission to others without suffering itself very unfortunate so that is the main cause for these guys to climb um, of course, there are other threats, um, and other threats to the southern corroboree frog are bushfires, which we know from the beginning of this year. If people remember what happened in Australia before all of the all of the COVID stuff, um, massive bushfires, and that that's happened, you know, for for years in Australia, and it's getting worse um, with increased temperatures due to climate change. And of course, climate change is also a big driver of um, extinction for these frogs. So a re reduced precipitation, reduced rain and warmer temperatures is likely to affect these frogs' breeding pools and the surrounding vegetation. Um, and during droughts, eggs and tadpoles can't survive during droughts. So with increased climate change factors, then you'll get increased drought levels and you'll get like an increased frequency of droughts um so the capacity for the frog to recover between those periods of drought um reduces uh also you've got feral animals like pigs and horses that have wreaked havoc on their breeding sites um on on their habitat you know getting rid of a lot of vegetation trampling a lot of things um, and exotic plants uh also acting as invasive species smothering breeding grounds and shading ponds which render them unsuitable for breeding and obviously those last two points there, um, introduced species like that come from people. <laughs> Yay! Um, so they're the threats. These are the things that have been affecting these little froggies, um, sort of stifling their, their breeding efforts, um, leading to the point where they're dwindling down to, as I said, about those 50 individuals. Uh, so in 1996, ecologist Dr. Will Osborne asked... Where the bloody hell are the frogs? Um, and it was realised by several organisations and him that the southern corroboree frog would not survive without that human intervention. And the corroboree frog recovery programme was born. Um, a strategy was formulated for the gen genetic and demographic management of captive southern corroboree frogs. Um, and then releases, which are currently sustaining the population in the wild. 
um, at the moment. And it's about 12 contributors from seven different organisations who sort of met together and decided on goals um, such as minimising the genetic diversity loss, um, the rate of inbreeding accumulation. um, So goals within these captive breeding programmes that sustain the health of the population, not just sort of boost the numbers as well. So an all round effort. So these partners include a conservation planning specialist group, uh, the New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage, who are like the leaders and they coordinate the conservation strategy. Um, and then you've got Taronga Zoo, Melbourne Zoo, um, the Amphibian Research Centre and Healesville Sanctuary, who all hold the captive populations of the southern corroboree frog. So they breed them there um, in very carefully controlled environments, temperature, humidity, etc. Um, and recent years have shown captive breeding to be successful um, with just one of those facilities producing upwards of 1,600 live fertile eggs each year. Um, the focus on the in the wild is translocating these eggs and also uh, adult frogs um, and tadpoles. And since 2005, that has been a focus um, to translate these guys to the national park. Um, and the eggs are released into artificial ponds. So these artificial ponds are made fungus-proof and drought-proof. Um, so those factors that are leading to these guys' decline, they're protected against in these artificial ponds in this specific area of the national park. So far, the survival of the eggs has been seen to be relatively high. Good signs are being seen. And in 2013, this area of... Um, artificial habitat was extended um, into a disease-free enclosure Um, so they have much larger space there as well now wild populations of course are very closely monitored to make sure that they are doing okay and that they're thriving out there Um, and just last year 2019 was a record breeding season for the zoos uh, with some 3,000 frogs being released um into the controlled area in the national park um and that has the most been seen since since these breeding programs the actual physical breeding of the frogs in captivity began in 2001 so i said 2005 there earlier that's when the focus on the translocating the eggs into the wild began but the actual breeding of the frogs began in 2001 because obviously you need you need time for these things to happen so Obviously, it's still very early on in these frogs' journey, so watch this space. I mean, tentative steps forward seem to be happening, but they're steps forward. You know, even if you take two steps forward and one step back, that's still one step forward. Um, So it's exciting times to be sort of looking at this program and how it's going. Um, And we know from previous stories on this podcast, and of course, we know from your own knowledge and research that's been done out there in the world that captive breeding can be very successful in helping species to survive um yeah so i just it's a little bit different it's a very sort of recent conservation story this one um where the fruits of of the conservationists labor um is sort of yet to be seen um but it's at the very sort of start of seeing positive results um so i wanted to sort of introduce these guys into people's worlds um and, and get them, them a little bit of attention as well because a lot of the time it is those big charismatic species that people really love and talk about when talking about endangered species and this guy's only two and a half centimeters long um but he deserves the attention 
as well. Um, so yeah, I wanted to tell you about him. Um, and he's so unique as well, like such a small habitat range. Um, yeah, and he's, he's a very cool little fellow, as we'll find out in the fun facts as well. Um, yeah, so I wanted to tell people their story. Um, currently, it is estimated that there's probably no more than about 150 individuals, um, which is still 100 more than the 50 that were left um, at the beginning of the story. So that is still incredible. Um the most reliable technique for population estimates is the instance of calling males within that artificial large enclosure area, disease-free, fungus-proof, drought-proof, that area um, there. Um, again, last year in 2019, conservationists who monitor that site have heard calls in areas where tadpoles have been released and which have been bare of wild frogs for years. So they know that these tadpoles have been released in those areas and then subsequently they are hearing calling males where they haven't ever in the past. Um, and that obviously, as I just said, leads to estimating um, the population of these guys. So much research is going into chytrid fungus worldwide, as is such a massive problem for amphibians. There's no clear answer yet, but knowledge has been greatly expanded in recent years. So with conservation and breeding efforts, we may yet see a future for these striking and iconic Australian amphibians. Time for fun facts about the southern corroboree frog. Fact numero uno. So as mentioned at the top of the episode, they are poisonous. But what makes this feature unique is that they produce their own poison rather than getting it from their food source just like all of those other basic frog bitches fun fact number two corroboree refers to a meeting or a gathering of aboriginal australians where they often paint striped markings on themselves just like the little froggy markings fun fact number three they reach sexual maturity at about four years old and they breed during a very short period between january and february and their lifespan is about nine years Fun fact number four. Females typically lay around 25 eggs in a single clutch. And fun fact number five, my favourite one. They contribute to the alpine ecosystem in which they live. They remove algae from ponds, keeping water crystal clear, benefiting many other aquatic plants and animals. Just showing again how the tiniest little babies are so important to the functioning puzzle of this world that we live in. Now, I would like to introduce Mr. Tristan Duak, our special guest for today, who I met whilst working in Madagascar. We were both both on the forest team and undertook surveys of forest species, including black lemur behaviour surveys, bird identification and herpetology counts. Since then, he has dedicated himself to many volunteering ventures in his homelands of Australia and the Palmers. Let's hear more about it. How the devil are you? Yeah. Oh, good, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. This coronavirus stuff's pretty bunkering down, but yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same. Um, typically, obviously, it's brilliant sunshine and blue skies outside, which never happens in England, and we can't go outside. So. <laughs> that's good. Cool. Yeah, that but, sucks. That's not ideal. <laughs> but apart from that, it's, uh, you know, picking along. 
Oh, that's good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah, yeah. So welcome, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Turn on the Light. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm very excited. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll jump straight in with the questions then. Um, I, first of all, yeah, okay, no problems. Sweet. I first of all wanted to uh, ask or talk to you or get you to talk about um, Madagascar. Because um, obviously I just did a little intro for you um, saying that's where we met. Um, and we both did some work out there. You were a research assistant for three months, wasn't it? Was it three months, four months? Yeah, it was four months, I think, by the end. Yeah, yeah. So a long, out there a long time. Um, and I have yeah. mentioned on the podcast before that I was out there as a staff member, but I haven't really gone into any detail about what we actually did out there. Um, so I'm passing mm-hmm. that, those reins over to you <laughs> and wondered if you, oh, God. <laughs> if you can remember that far back. Um, <laughs> yeah tell us about what what we did up there tell us about the forest and the surveys and stuff um yeah just give us an idea of, of what we were doing yeah well i suppose what so i suppose we were living in a shack on a beach which was unreal in the first place and um, getting up every morning and surveying through the day and the night sometimes i suppose what reptiles living behavior birds um, towards the end of my time, we were kind of doing some ant stuff, which was cool, and some like spider stuff. Mm, oh, yeah. that, I think that was it. Oh, butterfly stuff that was fun. Yeah, chasing around butterflies with a big net in a field trying to catch them. <laughs> yeah, was well, that time we caught like a hundred? Yeah, we yeah we broke the record, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. absolutely wild. Oh man, that was fun. <laughs> Absolutely exhausting. Yeah, yeah. We're probably catching the same ones though. Right? Just be honest. I don't know. No, it was a fun <laughs> time. It was a fun time. It was a good trip. Good people. Um, yeah, I really look back on that trip with fond memories. Um, mm-hmm. some, pretty, some pretty crazy things happened. I thought, even like looking back, like I remember being on the phone to my mum, her kind of being like, "What is that noise in the background?" And it was like sportive lemurs yelling. <laughs> I don't know. 6 p.m. or something like when's that ever gonna happen again like never um but yeah it was it was so fun were you um were you still there when we saw the fish eagle yeah i was there for that that was yeah. absolutely insane and it was um yeah, like a couple nesting like they would kind of fly over when we were in the shower and stuff mm. yeah and then one landed that on the beach really yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That was unreal. And then that yeah. bloody dog chased it away. Yeah, baby Shan. Baby Shan, that's right. I couldn't think of it. Yeah, I just I remember the marine team going mad and just yelling at us in inside of camp. And then we ran out like, what, what? And there's just this fish eagle just sat on the beach, just like, oh, hey. hey yeah, no. <laughs> I remember when we got up at first, all of us just like, what is, what are they yelling about? And then we finally decided to have a look. Yeah. And thank goodness we did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, anybody listening who doesn't know, fish, Madagascar fish eagles are like one of the rarest birds in the world. And I think there's something like 120 left or something like that, like really, really low numbers. Ooh, yeah. It wasn't very many, I'm sure. Yeah. I can't remember so, if that was like individuals or like breeding pairs or something. But yeah, I, I think, know, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's breeding pairs. Um, but obviously, those yeah. numbers might change. Out, but I'll, I'll I'll look that up later. Maybe put in yeah, a little a little thing in here. 
So I wanted to give a quick aside there on the Madagascar fish eagle. Um, as the name suggests, it is endemic to the island of Madagascar, um, and they are sadly critically endangered. Um, beautiful, beautiful eagles, almost a two-metre wingspan, um, absolutely gorgeous, white tails, uh, white heads. Um, yeah, and we were lucky enough to see them in the wild in Madagascar. Um, so I just wanted to comment there on their numbers. Um, it's thought that there's slightly fewer than 300 birds currently. Um, obviously still endangered. Uh, there are threats from human activity, water pollution, deforestation, land development, overfishing. Um, and they're also threatened by superstition, um, which is quite a common issue in Madagascar. There's a lot of superstition around certain animals. Um, whether they think they're a good luck talisman or a bad luck talisman, but either way, that seems to end badly for the animal. Um, so some people will chop off one of their legs um, as they think that that has healing powers, unfortunately. Um, but they are being protected. I mean, they are protected um, and work is going into their conservation by the Peregrine Fund. Um, they're working to protect important areas um, of habitat for these guys um, and... They're helping out with their mating seasons and nesting nesting seasons. So perhaps they will feature on a future episode um, as a success story. Um, but work is going into helping them and their numbers do seem to be up um, on what Tristan and I previously thought they were um, when we were in Madagascar. So that's good. Cool. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> what other um, crazy species did you see? Because I know I saw, I saw the both sexes of the Langahar. Um, which is a snake with a leaf-shaped nose. Um, they're pretty rare, pretty elusive. That was pretty crazy to see them. Yeah, I remember seeing one of them. Um, I, I can't tell you if it was the male or the female, but it was like the green one. The male. The green long one in the mangroves. Is that the male? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with the pointy nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. It, it's that just, was probably I mean, the only time I've been excited to like, see a snake, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it because you were you're just terrified of snakes you or you yeah. are <laughs> yeah not much i could say that's for sure yeah, and then yeah that, was, that was pretty special we made you um we made you hold one when we found one when yeah, we were I remember that. yeah oh, <laughs> i remember that i think it was in the well caught the thing and then he was running around trying to catch it and then yeah there i was yeah. holding the thing <laughs> It was a moment. It was like the smallest snake as well. Yeah, yeah. I've still got a photo <laughs> of it, which um, I'll probably I'll probably put on, on the podcast Instagram if that's all right with you. You look, yeah, e- e- you're smiling, but I'm pretty sure it's a grimace. Like. <laughs> yeah, it was like that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was a small little snake, but that was a big moment. Well done. We were proud oh, of yeah. you. Exactly right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like in terms of cool species, I'm trying to remember what else. I remember that was probably the like the most special. Um, or like I don't know, maybe special is the word, but kind of like most unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I really saw anything else super super rare. Maybe like I remember seeing like a. I remember seeing on one bird survey. Um, I think it was like a Namaqua dove. Oh. And I just remember turning to, I think it was Emily who was the the staff member on that. And I remember turning to her being like, 
what the heck is that? <laughs> and I think her initial reaction was like, I don't know, like, you know, the birds out here, like, I don't know what it is. And I was like, well, I don't know what it is. And then, <laughs> yeah, we kind of got back and it was some random dove that no one had really seen. So that was pretty cool. I think I remember that. I remember you guys coming back to camp and looking through all the ID books to try and figure out what it was that you'd just seen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's always cool um, when you yeah. see something you're not expecting in an area that you're not expecting. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, too, because, like, I think I'd been there for a long time. Like, I think it was, like, two and a half, three months or something. And to see something really random that neither, mm-hmm. like, myself or Emily knew was, like, what? Like, <laughs> that, was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And that's the beauty of, like wildlife and such isn't it like it just happens when you least expect it when you've been you know sitting there for hours on end and then something crazy pops up and makes the wait all totally worth it yeah exactly right that's why I think I find it so fun because sometimes you can kind of just go to the same areas and see the same birds but then or like same animals but then you know one out of you know 20 30 times it might just be that one special thing there which makes it all worth it yeah yeah the payoff is big yeah exactly right exactly right now before, um, oh, before sorry carry on oh, I was just going to say Madagascar was a, it's a wild time it was a fun time yeah it was and like the yeah. amount of different animals that you see and the biodiversity there is crazy like even though we weren't on the marine team as well like the ocean life that we got to see without even diving every day was still crazy so yeah kind of oh, that must have been did you get seen, seen like, like hawks build turtles or something like yeah wild. yeah and nosy tanakelly was just a different world yeah it was pretty wild yeah so nosy tanakelly is like it's a little island and it's a marine reserve so um i think it's 500 meters around the edge of this tiny little spit of land is all protected so there's no fishing there at all so the reefs have just yeah. absolutely blown up and there's green turtles coming by there's loads of parrotfish there's groupers um somebody even saw a tiger shark once there i think um oh yeah and then further off the coast when we were coming so we'd get a boat to nosy tanakelly to go and snorkel and dive and then one time when we were coming back we saw humpbacks off the side of the boat they were coming through the channel which was magical insane that would have been pretty special mm-hmm. yeah it was definitely so um, before i before i move on away from madagascar is there anything else that you remember about the time that you'd like to share with us or any other special oh, i just feel like there's so many running <laughs> through my head at time i think um one of the most, I don't know, random and cool things I really enjoy remembering was during a Lima survey. I don't think you were there. I think Jesse was on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were kind of looking up at the, at the Lemurs, like recording their behavior, and one took a poo on me. <laughs> that was pretty random because it was like, what the heck? When the hell? Like, who else has been shot on by a Lima? Like, not many people, surely. Like, that was that was pretty wild. Yeah, that is special. It's like you were chosen. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? That's exactly what I thought, Nick. <laughs> but, um, 
just so many. There's just so many different memories from it. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of pick and choose, I suppose, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we'll we'll leave it on that note because that's a that's a nice little story <laughs> to to leave Madagascar on. Um, yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you about your volunteering with uh, the National Zoo and Aquarium, um, yeah. and like what that involved, what you did there, um, and what what species that you worked with within the zoo. Yeah, so I volunteered there for maybe about two years. Um, I was what we called the native kind of track, so looked after all the, we helped look after all the Australian native animals. Um, so that included, I suppose, wombats, kangaroos, um, a lot of birds, things like fairy penguins and barking owls um, were pretty cool. Also uh, had some like tawny frog males and some other aviaries full of parrots and finches and, and stuff like that. Um, part of the native track was tree kangaroos as well. Um, they're pretty interesting animals. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really fun time. Um, it was definitely an experience I really enjoyed and I kind of got into it once I got back from Madagascar. Um, and, you know, I kind of got back from Madagascar with, you know, I suppose before I went, I finished uni. When I came back, I, you know, had no uni, had no job. Didn't really know what to do with my life. Um, working at some <laughs> bottle shop and then thought I would just start to, try, you know, try to volunteer and get out there doing some fun fun stuff, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Um, there were some really good memories from that. Um, one of the animals we got to look after were dingoes and they're quite um, – yeah, they're, they're pretty cool animal. They're, they're much just like a like a domesticated dog, really. The ones at the zoo mm-hmm. were hand reared by staff members, and we would take them out for walks and everything. And um, oh. you know, people could pat them and stuff. Um, so yeah. they're not really that that scary animal that I, I think they're spoken up to be sometimes. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was a really fun time. It was really good. And did you? So were you doing sort of mainly husbandry with the animals, um, or was there any thought of? conservation aspects to the work that you're doing there was there any like breeding anything like that yeah the stuff i was doing was mainly husbandry um there is a lot of breeding there to do with um i think the dingoes um and even i think some more i suppose of the native australian animals i don't think there's too many outside of them um apart from maybe like the uh red pandas um and the meerkats maybe um but outside of that there's not much breeding. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the bigger animals they have, um, I've got a couple of sun bears and both of them were kind of taken from, um, like a touring, I don't know, show circus kind of thing. Um, a lot of the animals they had, they did try to, you know, I suppose not just take them from, you know, the wild or somewhere. I suppose they, they did try to rehome those ones that couldn't be, released in the wild which was a good aspect of the zoo um when i was there it was undergoing quite a big transformation and it was expanding a lot um and now i've got quite a range of things there um i haven't been there in, in a while i stopped volunteering there a while ago but um yeah no, it was, it was a really fun time it was good and do you think i just wanted to ask like your general thoughts um on the role of zoos in conservation like from education and from it like a captive breeding perspective because i know some people 
there seems to be like two camps of people either people mm. see the value of zoos or people are totally against it and they should, don't think that zoos should exist I mean what are your thoughts on it like from having volunteered in 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 a zoo setting yeah I think I mean I mean zoos got me into animals when I was a kid um I I think without zoos I probably wouldn't be as I don't know passionate and as into them as I would be now um mm -hmm. I think they have a place in educating people and, and getting people into into those kind of career paths where they are you know where, where you can kind of pursue careers with animals and stuff um I, I think though there is kind of a fine line to tread with zoos I think um you know I, I think I think when it gets to those bigger animals it, it's quite sad to see some in some of the enclosures that they're in um but if it's done well enough, like if it is quite large, if they're animals that, you know, may not have had the best life and are kind of been rehomed to a zoo, I'm much more comfortable with that kind of aspect of it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, they do have to be careful. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is a lot of merit in having them there as well. Yeah, I definitely like to say it's a fine line. It's a balancing act. Yeah, and like, yeah, no one wants to see like, no one wants to see any animal in, in some enclosure where they just look really unhappy and, you know, just like a concrete square or whatever. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't know if you ever went to that little zoo in the capital of Madagascar in Tananarivo or whatever, and that place was just the saddest looking thing I'd ever seen, like a, you know, big concrete I did. I never had... snake in it or something. It's like, what the heck? Like, this isn't very good. Mm. <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I think there's. I never. Had a pleasure. Oh, look, you didn't miss out much, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, you touched there when you were working in the zoo that it was mostly with native species, um, yeah. which sort of kind of leads me nicely into my next question. Um, that you're so you're currently a volunteer with the Woodlands and Wetlands Trust, um, which involves all sorts of different work and studies and guiding people around Mulligan's flat. So I wanted you to tell the listeners a bit about that area of land, why that area of land is important um, and like the reintroduction of native species that have happened there. Yeah. So, so Mulligan's flat um, was an area where probably about 15 years ago, maybe 15, maybe less, um, a group of uh, what's known as the Canberra Ornithology Group noticed of a heap of superb parrots breeding in the area um, and superb parrots here are an endangered species um, so the government took some action and protected that land and essentially now it's like I'm not too sure on the exact size of it but it's quite a large bit of land which has a big predator proof fence around it um, mm -hmm. so that predator proof fence is the main kind of thing it tries to keep out of like cats and foxes um, and it keeps them out quite well um, it, it seems to go, I think it goes on the ground about one or two metres and it's about maybe two and a half metres high and has what's technically named the floppy top, um, which essentially is just a, you know, bit of know, mesh wire which can't really support the weight of anything. So as soon as something gets on the top there, they just fall back down. Um, within within Mulligan Flat, there's heaps of different animals. Um, there's heaps of echidnas, there's heaps of um, there's two different species of wallaby, swamp wallaby and the red-necked wallaby. Um, there's eastern grey kangaroos. Um, and they've done a few reintroductions. Um, a few of them have been successful. There are a couple which haven't, haven't been as successful. Um, 
a couple of the successful ones include um, Eastern Betongs. A Betong is kind of like a smaller kangaroo, um, like like much smaller than a wallaby, I suppose. Um, they reintroduced Bushstone Curlews, which are a bird which when they were, I suppose, native to the area, but kind of haven't been here for a long time. Um, but now there's quite a like a successful population in Mulligan's Flat, but it is only like maybe 20 or 30 individuals. Um, there's also a New Holland mouse out there, which got reintroduced. Um, I haven't seen any of them. They're a nocturnal, you know, quite small kind of field mouse thing. Um, and there's also spotted quolls, which is probably the most exciting thing out there. Um, quolls are, are, I suppose, like a carnivore. Um, they probably feast on quite small mammals as well as like insects. Um, again, they're a nocturnal thing, quite hard to see, and I've only ever seen them once out there. Um, but yeah, it's pretty exciting to go out there. Um, there's heaps of work you can kind of do with each of those animals as well as others. Um, I'm lucky enough to get out there and do some stuff with turtles, um, which yeah, kind of just popped up. I think, yeah, I think my dad kind of, I think once he was like, oh, you might be kind of keen to do this. And, um, yeah, next thing you know, here, like, there I am doing some turtle stuff. Um, uh, I suppose because it is a fenced area, um, you know, turtles, they want to migrate in and out. Um, there's quite a big body of water near Mulligan's Flat um, called Yerby Pond, and they want to kind of breed in there or in the in Mulligan's Flat itself, in, in some of the dams. Um, but I suppose in summer when they migrate in and out, they get stuck on the fence. Um so there's a few of us, um, which we've all part of part of Turtle Patrol, um, and we just walk around the fences. And if we see any along the fence, we just pick them up and put them on the other side. Really, um, but it's kind of good. Like it, it gets me outside and gets me looking at birds as well. Um, and you know, we always I always run to echidnas and wallabies and stuff as well. So it's always cool to see them out there as well. And how often can you get down there? How often do you get out there? Um, I try to get out there uh, maybe maybe once every week, week and a half. Um, I try to sign up for things whenever I can. Um, the way it kind of works is a large number of volunteers and we all just kind of use an app and sign up for, you know, the activity we've been trained for uh, or that we're kind of keen to do. Um, so, yeah, I try to get rostered on that maybe once a week, once every fortnight. But even if I don't get rostered on, I'll still go out and, you know, have a look and see what I can find because there is still some pretty exciting things to find out there. Um, and, you know, any any excuse to get out and have a look for birds, pretty keen to do. Um, I suppose part of the um, part of the trust is also Geronimo Wetlands. Um, and that's um, probably one of the better birding spots in, in Canberra, in Australia here. Um so, yeah, unfortunately, I don't really get to do many stuff out there through the trust. One thing I do get to do is help um, catch some Latham snipes in summer. And they're a migratory species of bird that comes from Japan. Um, so that's pretty exciting. We try to get out there maybe two or three times and catch as many as we can. Um, if they're big enough, we'll put a little radio tracker on it um, because people are pretty interested to see where they go in between Japan and Canberra. Um, um, but yeah, but you know, even if you, like that only happens in summer, um, but 
um, I probably try to get out there most weekends because you never really know what you're going to see there. Sometimes you can, yeah. yeah, I think in terms of birding in Canberra, I think I've probably seen most of the species that come to Canberra, but um, at the wetlands, you my wetlands, you don't really know what can be there. It's, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. So is, have you seen, or do you know of any results from the snipes from the radio trackers? Do you know if they found anything yet? Do you know, do you know where they think that they stop along the way? Yeah, so we the, we only I think we only managed to put a road tracker on one because we only put <laughs> one bird that was heavy enough. Um, mm. And I think the tracker, I think we could see it got to quite to like to Fiji, um, and then somewhere along the lines, the tracker stopped transmitting. Um, whether <laughs> that because it fell off or I don't know, maybe the bird died. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, we don't really know any idea apart from there, I suppose. Um, yeah, you got this way. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty small group that, that get amongst it. Um, and everyone's pretty keen on, on trying to find out more, which is really exciting. Um, so, hopefully, when the next summer comes around, we can, yeah, try to catch some others. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. So um, you've mentioned there, of course, bird watching, and that you are a keen a keen bird watcher. Um, I know that you also volunteered in the Bahamas looking at shorebird species. Um, I mean, is that something that you did because you loved birds, or did that sort of spur on your love of birds? Um, yeah, what what came first, the bird love or the volunteering? Yeah, so the um, the bird love came first. Um, <laughs> I kind of got into them at, at uni. Um, and Madagascar helped, I suppose, reinforce that love. Um, I was I was pretty into them when I got to Madagascar, but uh, I think just kind of being, you know, I suppose in Madagascar you always did it. It kind of really got my, I suppose, passion for it going there. Um, yeah, most times when I when I try to travel now, whether that's inside Australia or outside, it's really just revolved around birds and you know, what new birds I can see. Um, so going to the Bahamas, um, yeah, I kind of just applied for a, a gig on a, on a yacht out there um, where we just kind of surveyed off the yacht uh, for shorebird species. Um, it was done through a little NGO out there as well as through the um, Bahamian Trust, which was like a government kind of agency thing. Um it was pretty exciting. It was it was pretty it was pretty nice. I suppose similar similar moments in Madagascar where we were kind of just on a random kind of boat in some real picturesque waters and you know beachy islands and stuff. Um, but kind of just being able to you know every morning grab the grab the binos and just have a look at the beaches around you and try and see what you can find was really cool. Um, the main species we were trying to trying to spot were Wilson's plover. Um, they're an endangered bird in, I think, mainly in North America to like, I suppose, the Bahamas down that way. I don't know if they get uh, like south much more than, like the, you know, the Bahamas or the Caribbean. Um, but uh, yeah, it was pretty fun. So we kind of looked out for them as well as uh, pied oyster catchers. Um, another cool bird that we kind of looked out for was white-tailed tropic birds. Um, we would kind of keep an eye out too for some cool shear waters. 
Um, so yeah, it was it was all pretty exciting. It was really what kind of got me, I suppose, to want to do that was really just trying to get somewhere cool and different um, where I could just find some new birds, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, luckily, so I applied, yeah, I, I kind of applied, um, sent off my little, you know, average birding resume. Um, I applied for a couple at the time, that one, and I think uh, a couple somewhere else, and they just got back to me first. Um, so yeah went out there for a couple of weeks and then after that just hung around there and tried to find more birds. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose they're like, they're pretty, the birds there are pretty different to Australia, which is really cool. Um, especially being in Canberra, like I don't really get the chance to see many shorebirds. Um, even like Southern Hemisphere species or, or Australian species, I don't really get a chance to see, see too many of. Um, but in seeing birds like hummingbirds, really cool. Um, even like flamingos, like that was super incredible. Um, yeah, no, it's just a, it's a fun time. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a hard life. <laughs> yeah, right. that's what, um, yeah, every time my parents called me, um, yeah, they were pretty jealous, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was good fun. I love it. I love the story of you just following the birds around the world, wherever you can find them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even like, even um, like last year in Australia, I went out to um, Murray Sunset National Park, which kind of on the border between South Australia and Victoria. It's in quite like an arid and dry kind of, you know, Australian deserty kind of area, like red sand, spiky bushes, um, and literally just went out there just to find some birds with four other people, <laughs> you know, came back there for two weeks and that was, that was unreal. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's great. It's a great little hobby to have. Definitely. Definitely. It gets you out there and it's always fun to look at other species and see their little quirks and how cool they are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Now, just um, just before we go, um, I wanted to touch on the fact that sort of all what we've talked about today is slash was voluntary. Um, now, I would definitely call you a conservationist, an environmentalist, like your mind is just geared that way. Um, but I know some people sometimes feel like that imposter syndrome of not being a real, air quotes, real conservationist because they don't get paid for the work that they do. Um, so I wondered if you had any encouraging words for people who have that kind of imposter syndrome or don't feel like they're a real conservationist. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think if, I think if you enjoy it and you want to get out there, just, just get out there and do it. Um, I've never felt like I've needed to get paid to do it. I think, especially with, with bird kind of stuff, like it's just a hobby of mine, bird watching. Um, and I'm quite happy to keep it as a hobby. I don't need to get paid to want to go out and see them. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I think as long as you enjoy it, just go out there and do some stuff. <laughs> and we need people like that. We need more people to appreciate the natural world and to want to want to see it and then protect it and, and just love it. Yeah, and there's, there's so many, even like citizen science kind of things these days, like eBird where you can just quite easily, you know, anyone can just go out and see what birds they find and put up on eBird for then everyone else to see. Um, and, you know, heaps of different, uh, you know, heaps of different resources would then use that information on eBird for who knows what. I know in 
in Australia, we have a thing called the Atlas of Living Australia, and you know they use eBird as well as other kinds of citizen science based, I suppose, you know, apps or websites to help kind of to help them kind of realize, you know, where population boundaries of, of animals may be and where that distribution may get to. Um, so there's definitely a lot of merit to it. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think if you just enjoy it, just get out there and do it. Yeah, that's a really good point as well. All these apps these days. I mean, I've got one for for wildlife that I spot on walks and stuff. And yeah, as you say, it can contribute to the wider picture. Um, and I guess volunteers a lot of the time uphold a lot of research work and a lot of conservation work because they're the biggest workforce that you could possibly have world over. Um, so I guess if anybody wants to have a takeaway message from this interview, it's go and download some citizen science apps, eBird being one of them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just get out there and do it. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I just really love looking at birds, really. I, like, I think it's great fun. We can help. If I can help anyone try to figure out, uh, I don't know, a way to protect that species better. I, you know, I, I enjoy kind of knowing I may have contributed to that. Um, and yeah, that's what kind of gets me out to do it, I suppose. Definitely. Oh, well, that's, that's nice words to end on, I think, a nice point to end on. Um, apart from the last two questions that I have to ask everyone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the first one. Yeah, are you ready? <laughs> okay, so the first is, what animal adaptation would you like to have and why? Yeah, so I don't really know. I think um, it's probably a bit predictable, but I think wings would be pretty cool. I think just being yeah. able to fly would be pretty awesome. Um, but even things like gills would be so cool, like breathing on the water and like just swimming around. Yeah, be, definitely. They're two amazing. popular choices. Yeah. Sorry? That would be amazing, just like swimming around. Uh, yeah. It's a tough question. It is a tough question. It <laughs> is. Yeah. That's why I like to ask it. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be my two top ones, though. Yeah. If you, ha if you had to choose, if you're forced to choose. Wing. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be, right? Yeah. Bird, right. bird watcher enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. And the, the last question I have for you, which is also a hard one, too, <laughs> is um, who would play you in a movie of your life? Yeah, look, oh, I've been thinking about this one so long today um <laughs> i would like to think it would be someone really cool like liam neeson or keanu reeves um but i doubt it would be <laughs> um i don't know i think someone maybe a bit more uh i don't know lack of a better term but more nerdy <laughs> I don't know if you watch like the OC but maybe like Adam Brody I think maybe he would be a bit more suited yeah I can see that yeah yeah. but yeah I mean I don't know it's a hard one <laughs> I like that Adam Brody tall, tall dark curly hair yeah it works yeah, that's, what, that's what I was kind of thinking yeah yeah <laughs> awesome okay I'll have to uh... I was going to say, like, he, I feel like he's a bit, like, a bit gangly as well. Like, I'm a bit lanky. So, like, you know, I think that also fits. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. 
I'll uh, I'll do some research and see how into birds he is. Oh, beautiful. just to really recommend it. <laughs> I would I would love a I would love a report back on that. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> awesome, can't wait. <laughs> okay, well I think that wraps us up for today. Um, yeah, just thank you so so much for taking time out of your day to to talk to us and to share your love of birds. No, that's all right. Thank you for having me. Um, and also, like, thank you for the podcast, too. I think they're really good. It's good to get people's stories out there and try to encourage more people. So, yeah, thank you to you as well. Oh, thank you. Oh, I didn't even tell him to say that. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's all right. Amazing. <laughs> cool. All right, then. Well, you take care of yourself and you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Speak to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to me waffle again. Um, if you've made it this far, well done. I thank you very much. Um, I know a bit of the sound there on the interview wasn't the most amazing in the world. Um, I will eventually get a microphone, I promise, and a proper setup. Um, but these things cost money, so it'll have to wait. Um, so thank you ever so much um i will put in the show notes um the new big fiverr photography which i spoke about at the top of the episode um i'll put a link in to the show notes about that um and i'll put a link into the show notes um of the orcas footage um in strangford loch in ireland because that's just wonderful to see um and as always you can find me on instagram at turn on the light pod you can find me on twitter at saving species um not the best at twitter yet but um, yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, and yes, if you want to email me or contact me for any reason whatsoever, then my email address is turnonthelightpod at gmail.com. Um, and as I took a little break and the schedule sort of um, shifted a bit, there will actually be another new episode next week. Um, so two consecutive weeks of new episodes. Uh, so I hope to see you back again then. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Mm-hmm.